Welcome to The Green Rush, a podcast about the intersection of cannabis, the capital markets, and culture. On a weekly basis, hosts Ann Donahoe and Nick Opich of KCSA Strategic Communications speak with the business leaders, financial experts, cultural icons, legislators, and generally interesting people moving the cannabis and psychedelics industries forward. This week, Chris Crane is back in the host seat for a new episode with special guest Laura Bianchi, founding partner of Bianchi and Brandt. Laura joins us this week to discuss how her firm helps operators navigate the unique business challenges they face in the cannabis industry, her journey into cannabis law, the evolution of medical and recreational markets in Arizona, and her perspective on what's to come for the legal marijuana industry. If you're interested in learning more about Laura and Bianchi and Brandt, check out the links in our show notes. Also, be sure to follow Bianchi and Brandt and Laura on Instagram and LinkedIn to learn more about Canvas Law and the firm's suite of corporate and business litigation services. So sit back and enjoy our conversation with Laura Bianchi of Bianchi and Brandt. All right. Well, Laura, welcome to the Green Rush podcast. Great to have you here. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. So you have been involved in this, uh, particularly in Arizona, from like the very beginning. Um, and I was there. I actually lived in Arizona at the time when I started Forefront. We were we were based out of Phoenix. So we were we were both there for the early days of the program. But, you know, actually, before I, before we even jump into that stuff, why don't you tell the listeners a little bit more about yourself and, uh, and, and, and the firm. What does uh, Bianchi and Brandt uh, focus on? Sure. Well, again, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, yes, we have been part of this wild ride since about 2010. It's sort of like dog years, so I feel like it's really been like a half a decade. <laughs> but yeah, there's not a lot of people can say they've been in cannabis for 13 years. No, it is definitely, it, it's been a, a fun journey and it's been interesting. It's never dull. I could, I could always say that. Um, you know, my background is, is I'm a, a typical corporate M&A attorney. That's what, you know, I started doing, worked in that. And I would love to say that, that there was some a grand plan. One day I'm going to make up a better story. But really, it was just we had some real estate clients who were interested in the program when it first came out. Uh, and when they were going through the rulemaking process. And so I, you know, started looking at the rules from a business perspective. Nobody knew what to do. Arizona, we've never seen anything like this. And so went through the rulemaking process and just kind of applied again, those sort of basic corporate skills. And then once the rules were made, it was like, well, people want to apply. Great. I know the rules inside and out. I've spent six months on these. So, you know, kind of started that way. And then really from there, it, you know, it really sparked or, or piqued my entrepreneurial side in that, there was no precedent. There was no cases. Nobody knew what to do. We knew what we didn't want to do. Poor California and Colorado always get blamed. Nobody wants to be them. <laughs> so it's right, like, right. so I said, you know, from a contract perspective, that's the only way we're ever going to to get further in this industry. And so just started bit by bit. And I, I can honestly say I had no idea of what it would uh blossom into, to use a bad pun, <laughs> but it's certainly been a wild ride. Um, you know, we are a full scale business and litigation firm. And we do 
every realm of the cannabis industry, you know, folks ask all the time, like, well, you're a cannabis attorney. Really, all that means is we're really great at the areas of practice that we do, and we're able to do it in highly regulated, constantly changing and evolving industries. So whether that's cannabis, psychedelics, now with all of these, you know, that's coming forward with ketamine and these different things, it's it's second nature to us because we've been, you know, through the, the gauntlet <laughs> with cannabis. So, you know, we've got a great team of, of lawyers. We function much more like a company. I will say that are like outside general counsel for a lot of our clients that we've had from the beginning. And we really try to be the best possible value add. We try to be the, the attorneys that are different, right? We don't just stay in the box. We don't just bill for one contract. We really are involved with, you know, every aspect of their business from where they have been, where they presently are, where they're going. We help with goals, expansion strategy. So it's a, it's a lot of fun, but I, I certainly am confident that it makes us unique among, um, you know, more traditional law firms. Absolutely. And you didn't now you didn't start in this industry with your current firm, right? Did you start, if I remember correctly, you were originally with Rose Law? Um, yep, as an intern. As an yeah, intern. As a okay. Intern. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. The, uh, I remember you you and, and Ryan Hurley were kind of like, yeah. like the go-to attorneys in Arizona in the in the early days. Totally. Yes, there were a lot of yes. uh, I would call them uh, sort of ambulance chasers turned cannabis attorneys back in those days. Uh. Uh, you well, guys were the ones that like we all sent folks to <laughs> get, get real legal. And I appreciate that. Yes, we loved working with Forefront. We still do. Um, no, I mean, it, it was it was crazy. And back then, you know, it, the traditional firms and the big firms, we were getting letters from the Bar Association saying, you know, you really can't practice in this. You're violating federal right. law. It was a fiasco in the beginning. I mean, Ryan and I really were like, OK, well, the Arizona voters passed it. It's state law. What other area would you more so need a lawyer? So it makes no sense not to go forward. But it definitely was not anywhere near where it is today, where not to be cheeky, but like everybody's a cannabis lawyer. I'm like, oh, so now it's popular and you all want to be this. <laughs> right. Back then it was not. <laughs> it was not the cool kids. It was the, right. we were right. on the fringe trying to figure it out. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't know if you know uh, Kershid Koja. Um, uh, he's with uh, Greenbridge Corporate Law now, out of uh, out of out of uh, I think Sacramento and, and the Bay Area. But uh, I mean, I remember uh, just as sort of a little aside, I think you'll appreciate, right? He he was in the early. This was two thousand nine, two thousand ten, um, and or no, maybe yeah, 2010, 2011, maybe. Uh, but he was working with a major major national corporate law firm. I won't mention the name, um, and he got involved in the Arcview Group early on, and held the first Arcview, the first ever Arcview group meeting at his corporate firm. And they had, to be fair, they had told him not to do it. And he did it anyway. And about midway through the meeting, <laughs> midway through the meeting, he got called out and he came back and he told everybody, hey, I just got fired. Um, right. But they're going to but they're going to let us finish the meeting. So we did. And he and he, you know, and he went off and he started his own cannabis focused law firm. And then, you know, years later, that same firm that fired him for holding that meeting was coming back to him asking for advice on how they can get into cannabis and would he like to help them? Like so, yeah, it's really come. It is not really shocking. No, nope, we see that over and over again. It is everyone now is interested and wants to be part of it in some way. <laughs> That's right. Little do they know how how hard it is. Um, yes. But uh, you know, speaking of speaking of the the sort of the wild west early days in Arizona, like those. Those early days in Arizona were pretty crazy, uh, from what I remember, and they were the first state to do a real lottery licensing program, right? Back then, every other state had done the machine. Yeah, yeah, literally, (laughs) lottery ball machine. Yes, yes. Oh no, I remember sitting around the sitting around our laptops with my staff, like watching this ping pong balls in the hopper. Like, did my client's number get like? It was absolutely crazy. Um, Totally. But it's they insane. were the first state to do that. And, you know, at a time when 
you know, it's not like today where an unsophisticated operator can, you know, get their ping pong ball picked. And there are lotteries now are a lot more common and they can basically turn around and flip it to an experienced operator. There were no experienced operators back then. No, no, not at all. So tell us a little bit about like, what were some of the consequences that you saw, uh, from the you know the consequences and the, the ramifications of issuing licenses via lottery that early in the development of the industry, I mean it was chaos. It really was. I mean when I <laughs> when I look back again, how far we've come, and I know you guys dealt with this too, of course, at forefront. But it was. You know, a lot of folks, I would say, were it was sort of compiled of, you know, you guys are real estate guys. That's what they knew. So that's how they were getting into it. You sort of had the I call them the lifestyle people. I know that's probably not. But the folks that, you know, really have been working on this for years, they wanted to be part of it. And then you just had these guys that were sort of the outliers and the risk takers. And they weren't sure. But this was new and wacky and weird. And so they wanted to be in it. And so you just had the most bizarre hodgepodge of people coming together trying to build a program and i remember the rulemaking process i mean it's just it was unlike anything else because we had nothing again to really apply it to and so now you had folks that just arbitrarily got this you know this asset that is as we know now especially in arizona so valuable and i mean the fights the battles the partnerships nobody was doing due diligence it was like everybody ran to the las vegas you know chapel in vegas and got married and it was like hey we're here we're all gonna work together it didn't go well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, a lot of those, a lot of those partnerships, from what I recall, went about as well as those Vegas. Uh, you know, those, totally, one hundred percent, if not worse, maybe. It was, it was chaos, and you know, we learned a lot, though. I, I honestly can say. So much of our practice and why I think, you know, those of us have been in this industry for a long time at last that, you know, yeah, I'm still a lawyer, but there is so much more to what we had to do because nobody else, no one else knew insurance, underwriting, they didn't bank accounts. I mean, we really had to figure out every single step of the way and bring good professionals in and help, you know, learn together. And so it it certainly shaped us into the company we are today, but it, it created a lot of chaos. And, you know, a lot of that was the lottery. A lot of that was just a brand new industry that everybody had, you know, wanted to be in. And, and, and again, no due diligence. So I'm I'm thankful in a lot of ways that that has passed. I actually hear people talk about, it, you know, even now when we do transactions as opposed to like, I think I want this many millions because that was the right. beginning. <laughs> no, that's that's right. I mean, it, right. and it's a good point, right? Because, you know, Nevada happened not that long after uh, Arizona, and they were a pure, you know, a, a pure competitive application process. And there was plenty of chaos there. I don't think it was quite to the degree that you had in Arizona. In fact, if I recall correctly, I mean, Arizona was really the first state where you had a number of c- license holding companies wind up in receivership. Um, yeah. I mean, did you were you involved in any of that? Some of it, but even that, and I'll tell you, even to this day, you know, we, we have a much better handle and more professionals, but the, the receivers that you normally would pull from in a, you know, let's call it a typical business or one that's been around for a little bit longer, we didn't have that. So even the receivers didn't know what they were doing. So, you know, in a lot of ways I get, and I still get brought in kind of as corporate counsel advisor to receivers who are going, okay, great. I'm in this, like, I'm supposed to run this business that I have zero idea what I'm doing. There's only a few folks that actually know you know, how to run this from, from that world. So it, you know, again, it was a lot of, all right, well, come on in. You guys have done this long enough that you can help us at least, you know, not move forward so blindly. So we're, you know, producing and and actually protecting an asset, but we had a lot of receiverships. We had a lot of, 
you had a lot of folks that got into this, of course, that didn't have the best intentions. Again, like with any new industry, I think we flushed out a good amount of them. You still get sure. that. Well, if I remember correctly, like, come up. I mean, wasn't like Medbox was like the big name in Arizona at one point. Yeah. Oh, 100%. And it just, you also had physicians popping. I mean, it just, it was chaos. Nobody knew what they wanted to do. And again, because our licenses are vertical, you know, while that is great from a value perspective, it, it sort of created this place where you didn't have folks come in and say, oh, I want to try the dispensaries or I want to do cultivation or I want to, I'm going to do all of it. And so right. there was so much more cost and so much more diving into the deep end because it was like, well, I have it, so I have to do it, right? I don't know that that's always true, but that right. was the thought process. Like, well, and it's also really expensive, I have the right. right? Like, do you know, you got to raise a lot of money. And now you got these partners who a lot of them didn't even know each other back then, right? I mean, you... I remember. So speaking of Medbox, if I remember correctly, like what they did was they, there was there was a, there was a I forget what the fee was, but there was a fee to apply. It was like what like twenty five grand or something. Maybe it was less, but um, but they would basically say like, hey, if you can put anything in towards this, we'll give you an equity stake in a business, and we'll partner you with a bunch of people that you don't know who are also willing to put up money, and we're going to put everybody in these lotteries, and whoever wins, you have a license, and you have to agree to buy all of our really expensive equipment and and whatnot, uh, and. Uh, you know, and, and when they flamed out, now you had these partners who had literally never met, who didn't have money, who didn't necessarily have access to capital, who were being told to go run a vertically integrated cannabis business. Right. Of which they knew nothing about and had no experience. That's 100%. Right. And even the policies and procedures and bylaws, operating agreements, right? All of the things that in any business you would take time to work through because they actually matter. It didn't. Everybody had these sort of packages that you just kind of brought in. And it was like, well, sure. I think that it was a lot of it was a repeat of the rules. So it had nothing to do with operations or protecting That's each right. other or <laughs> rights and remedies or what happens if we hate each other. It was just sort of running to the roar and everybody was throwing their money in because it was like, if I don't do this by Friday, it's over and I'm never going to be a bazillionaire. So it was, it was quite a few years of lots of lawsuits, lots of chaos, lots of learning experience, lots of breakups. But it, but it did ultimately become a, a, a better and more professional market. So good. So tell us about that evolution. Like we'll, we'll, we'll hold off on the transition to recreational. We'll get there. We'll get there in a few minutes, but you know, talk a little bit about those years between the, you know, the chaos of the first lottery in, it was at 2012, I believe 2011. Well, yeah. When they first, cause it was passed in 2010, we had two years of, you know, lawsuits and fiasco with the governor of Arizona in 2012 was the, the beginning of the, the program and the first license was allocated. Right, 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 exactly. So between 2012 and 2020, right? I mean, there was a long time. Arizona kind of became known as the, the best medical-only market in the country for a while. So like, talk us about how did that happen? How did we go from chaos and lawsuits and receiverships to a really thriving, successful medical market? You know, I mean, some of that obviously is just learning as we, you know, as we go, right? We got better and better, even from a contract perspective and how we could structure things and how we could protect lessons learned. You know, I, I laugh, I, I, it still happens today that folks that come in that want to run to the roar and not listen and not get advice and not stop, they always come back and go, well, that didn't work. And now I have to pay you a bazillion dollars to, you know, litigate this and maybe I'll listen to you next time. It's literally why I have so many of my same clients. <laughs> so <laughs> they learn, they learn the hard way, but I feel like those lawsuits, you know, got everybody there. Um, and, you know, I, I think too, Arizona is is a bit of a, a you know wild west kind of state but because of that right you have a lot of entrepreneurs a lot of guys in the real estate industry a lot of folks who 
who are really entrepreneurial more so than, than maybe because you go a little bit more in the East. And so I do think that people started to go, okay, like this is actually something, right? They're actually making money. There's value. This is a business. And so as, you know, landlords and real estate owners started to get more comfortable and familiar as folks started to, you know, make mistakes, but see some of the successes and what we needed. And I also think is the stigma, you know, people started to see that all of our children didn't become heroin addicts. They didn't all blow up and drop out of school. Like all the terrible things that were going to happen if we passed, you know, medical marijuana, they didn't happen. And it was just a great business opportunity. And so, you know, little by little rocky road, you get more professionals that came in, whether that's lawyers, CPA, you know, you just, it starts to build and, and the professionals that were in it, I think we did, you know, and I say we collectively here because you were part of that. We did a good job of working together, right? We, you know, I think we all still have very strong relationships. We still work with Vicente Cedarberg. We work with you guys. It's, it's, we went through something that it's not the usual competition, right? It's like, hey, look, there's right. enough work for all of us. Let's figure it out together. <laughs> so it really kind of created this, like, let's all be in hell together for a bit and figure it out. And so, you know, you had a lot of smart people that really bound together that that allowed the industry to progress. And I, I think that is, you know, one of the things that we've done well across the board. And, you know, because Arizona is a limited license state, of course, we didn't open the floodgates and allow a lot, you know, zoning limited the locations, yeah. especially back then before we had adult use, it was really challenging to get locations. And so I think all of those together allowed us to build a great program from a business perspective, you know, and, and we kept changing and building and evolving and, you know, changing the rules and seeing what was wrong. So, you know, we have a good, a good regulatory agency too, that has always worked with us. They may not be 100% right all the time, but they've been very good to work with. And I think that's gone a long way. <laughs> no, I think that's totally, that's totally fair. And, and also, you know, to be fair, right, you also had, as you alluded to, a lot of the chaos kind of went away because a lot of those folks were you know, sussed out and ultimately acquired by, you know, acquired by more professional operators. I mean, you know, Harvest acquired like half the operators in the state, right? I mean, a little bit, little bit of a little bit of an exaggeration, but not quite, right? Not really, Steve. Definitely, yeah. Steve, he made miracles happen for sure. <laughs> that's right. That's right. I mean, they, you know, and that set them up for the big uh, right, true leave acquisition. True leave. And, uh, and 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 the recreational initiative, which um, which is which is a great segue, because uh, you know, so there were two e efforts at legalization in uh, Arizona. Um, so let, we'll, we'll talk about them both here uh, quickly. But the first, obviously, was 2016. Um, I was very involved in that initiative. I had just moved from Phoenix to Boston. I was still quite connected with that early Arizona industry. So I was on the drafting committee and um, helped play a role in sort of negotiating a. a a truce or peace, so to speak, between the DC folks and some of the industry folks to make sure we had initiative. But that was the first one that failed. Um, and it was real narrow. It was like, it was a very close win uh, or very close loss, I should say. So talk about that. Like what, what happened in 2016? Um, what was that campaign like? And, and why do you think that, you know, that one failed where, you know, Massachusetts, Maine and uh, Nevada all passed in the same election? So I, unfortunately, I don't think our industry was ready for it. I mean, you know, I worked super, I was very involved in it as well. We were very active in speaking and getting out there. And I just think there was one of the things that I, we have worked on is the dissension in the industry, right? Because you also have a lot of folks that, again, if you want to call it, they've sort of come into the light. And so they're not used to dealing, you know, with other folks in sort of an open way. And so there was a lot of competition. There was a lot of, we can't let anybody else know what we're doing. You know, we still are very secretive. And so 
Honestly, the, the the medical industry, they had put so much money and I think they were still a little beat up from the wars and it was like, we're just not ready for more. Like, I think they wanted to continue <laughs> with the medical program and there was a lot of fear. And so, you know, when we're disjointed as, a, as an industry, it, it falls apart and you had competing, you know, bills that were coming out and things like that. And the information was, you know, not, not super accurate. And I just think that because we were not united, that's one of the main reasons that it fell. I, I agree. I think that's a great analysis. And the only thing I would add to that is um, that campaign had at least in a per capita basis, right, based on like the population of the state, by far the most money spent by the opposition um, compared to anywhere else. Um, it's it's like the only place we got. It's the only place that our side was outspent, um, flat out outspent. And we now we and interestingly enough, if I recall, we also raised more money per capita for the yes campaign than in any of these other states. But the opposition raised more than we did, uh, which was unusual. Um, and we didn't see that anywhere else. So that, you know, no, they ended up being lost by like totally. a point and a half, right? I mean, we got like 48 Yeah, and a half it was more. a small margin. Right. And, you know, and maybe it's because I feel like we've, we've, you know, had a fight every turn, right? Even in 2010 when it passed, we had two entire years where we had no dispensary programs because of lawsuits and fighting. And so... You know, I, there has always been a push, but I think the one positive is that once it either succeeds or fails, again, people sort of go, okay, now this is here. It's a business. Let's kind of jump behind it. And so some of that, you know, angst, I think, went away. And I think, again, that's why you saw with Smart and Safe, you know, it was able to, to pass with flying colors. But at that time, we had incredible opposition. And, you know, I don't know that we... It, we were still figuring out how to answer a lot of those questions, and they did a really good job of picking out the you know, fear points of other states and what didn't go right or what didn't go wrong. It, and I think that, you know, certainly didn't help. Yeah, no, then, well, and so, and so that's, I mean, that's a good question for the, or, or a good segue into the next question, which is, you know, we won in 2020 and it won really big. Um, so, I mean, how involved were you in that? And, and what do you attribute that difference to? You started getting into it a little bit. The initiatives were very different. Um, if I remember correctly, right, the, the, the content of them was very different. Um, so, I mean, talk about what, like, what was the difference in those campaigns and, and what do you attribute the success? Was it just, you know, four more years of people being ready or uh, was the campaign better? Like, what, you know, what, what, why, why do you think there was such a, a, a massive jump in support in just four years? So I think it's a mixture. I do think, again, as time goes on, people, it starts to become like, it's just not something I want to fight about. I don't care. Like It's been here. Nothing bad has happened. Great. Have a ball. There's so many other things going on in the world that are problematic right now. So I think there's some level of that. Um, but I also think, you know, SmartSafe gave preference to the current license holders. And I think that was a, a huge give in in making the folks who have spent so much money on this industry feel like, it, it wasn't against them, right? So in other words, they were gonna be, become dual license holders as long as they were in good standing. We added the social equity component to it, um, albeit small and not a lot of direction, but we added it. <laughs> so we had that part. And so I, you know, I think it was a much more, again, cohesive industry combined with you know, a state that saw that, that it wasn't bad, it wasn't anything. And you know, as from an industry perspective, we're a state that depends so highly on tourism. So I also think a lot of folks saw this as, you know, a benefit to, to we're, we're January through what, the end of, you know, June, you know, maybe May, that people flock here and then again in the in the fall and the wintertime. And so I think that had a lot to do with it, too. Just a more business approach versus, you know, the hellfire and brimstone is going to happen if we have adult use. <laughs> yeah, I think that's that's fair. And a lot of other states had done it by that point, right? Um, yeah. Totally. Yes, it, it, we were not the first. Right, right. And in 2016, it would have been the first, but 
Um, it was still only four years since Colorado had passed legalization. Their program was uh, was was still relatively new, right? I mean, it took them a couple of years yeah. to really get off the ground, and um, you know, by four years later, it was a you know a bit of a different world. Um, and people were afraid of of Colorado's program. And again, I always feel you know I'm from Colorado originally, so I. I between Colorado and California, like you're the first to do something. Of course, it's easy to everybody points and goes, oh, my God, we don't want to be those states. So, you know, some of that is looking and going, hey, we're our own individual state. We have a restricted license program. You know, there isn't going to be a dispensary on every single corner. This isn't going to be chaos. I think a lot of those facts, you know, we were able to show that in the industry. And so that helped from a you know a voter perspective as well. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So. Uh, so what's it like now? I mean, how how has the how has Arizona transitioned from medical direct? As I mentioned, it was, you know, it was kind of known as the, you know, the best medical only market, but it's no longer. Now it's a rec market like yeah. like most of the others. And so how's that transition gone? What's the you know, what's the what's the state of the Arizona market look like today? It's a little bumpy. <laughs> like any new program has been a little bumpy. Um, you know, certainly we still have a medical program, but, I, you know, we've seen on a, obviously on a monthly basis the increase in the adult use side versus the medical side. Now, of course, our, most of our licenses are dual licenses, so we still have both. But, you know, there's certainly been a drastic increase in, in just the patient base and the amount of folks that are you know entering the industry. I will say because we then got a whole nother set of cultivation rights, so we don't have limits on canopy space, we don't have limits, right? If you've got a dual license, you have the ability to have two offsite cultivation facilities. So, you know, I guess we could start with the positive that allowed more brands and, and you know, different product offerings to come in from other places because now there was much more space and room. We also allowed now manufacturing facilities, which we didn't allow standalone manufacturing facilities before. Mm. So there's been some some benefits as we sort of open and expand and, and make the market, uh, you know, becomes more sophisticated. But it also flooded the market. So from a wholesale perspective, we have definitely seen, you know, an increase in product and a decrease in the pricing. And so, you know, I, I try to look at this glass half full. It has definitely, again, it's increased, you know, due diligence and the thoughtfulness at which people go into these, you know, relationships. It's created sort of joint ventures of folks that are really good operators, but maybe only had one or two licenses that now need to come together and build something a little bit greater and grander to compete um, and something maybe a little bit more strategic than before. I think it's also, you know, given way to people trying to select what they do well instead of trying to do everything right. Even though we're vertical, people are going, OK, look, I'm great at retail or I'm a cultivator or I want these brands. Right. And so they have to bring in joint ventures for those other uses. But everybody's not trying to do everything because it just it doesn't make sense in the long run. You've got to pick what you're great at. And so, you know, there's been a lot of expansion into other markets and things, too, as folks try to, you know, grapple with the competition. So it's it's we're still in sort of an in between, you know, capital, of course, there's not a ton of access to it right now. Um, Challenging, that's, not an, right? that's not an Arizona specific issue. <laughs> no, no. But, you know, we've definitely had that. And I think, you know, it also helped flesh out some of, again, those big like people coming in overspending on licenses. Right. And you're getting, you know, 50 million in shares that now are worth a penny. And it, it's it to me, it's helping the business evolve a little bit. And I know that's painful for the folks going through it. But I think that's necessary. Again, if we want to continue to evolve into a you know long term successful industry, we have to have you know, 
due diligence and we've got to have things make sense when you're bringing in capital and partnerships and it can't just be, you know, you get a license, you get a license, you get a license. So I think it's, it's been bumpy, but I think we will get there. You know, this year is probably going to be the most challenging, but I do think we're, we're getting through it and we'll be a better industry for it. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, you, you hit on something I want to spend a little more time on, and then we're going to move, uh, move out of Arizona and start talking about some other stuff. But it is a, it is a very different recreational market or adult use market than any others for a few reasons. I mean, you talk about vertical integration, um, right? It, it is still largely a vertical market, although there are some now some retail only licenses. But it's always been, even under medical, it's vertical in, vertically integrated licenses, but not necessarily mandated vertical integration that you don't have, like you still have a wholesale market among the vertical operators. It's not like Florida where like TrueLeaf has to grow everything they sell out of their TrueLeaf stores. So you still have this big wholesale market. So you could have a retail store in a rural area that doesn't do that well and still have a thriving retail, a thriving wholesale business. Um, that's a very different market dynamic than we've seen anywhere else, particularly in the context of it's still a limited license market, which very few of the recreational markets are, right? Most of them are now unlimited licenses. But because you don't have that, uh, the, the canopy cap, um, it almost acts like an unlimited market from a wholesale perspective, less so from a retail perspective. So like, are there aspects of the market in Arizona that are doing better than, you know, aspects of the vertical that are doing better than others? Like what kind of sort of different dynamics are you seeing because of this, uh, this very interesting and different and unique licensing regime. Sure. Well, and I think there's a couple components to it. First of all, you know, the folks that really came out and did large scale cultivation that their their sort of bread and butter was wholesale are certainly, I think, struggling the most. They're they're just, you know, not only because of the surplus of product, but just advances in technology and equipment and things. You know, you don't need those grand, you know, so many hundreds of thousands of square feet of canopy space now as much as in the beginning. And so I certainly think the wholesale market is struggling. Um, you know, it, we've also seen, though, a lot of our standalone adult use licenses have been able, unable to open because what happened is we did it so fast in Arizona. Right. And we've got those 130 dual licenses that have all the offsite rights. They're both. Then you've got those remote county licenses, which are just adult use. The dispensary has to stay in those counties, but you still could have an offsite cultivation and manufacturing anywhere else. Then we have the social equity, which, again, same idea. They're an adult use you know, uh, retail space and you can have the offsite cultivation and, and manufacturing. And what happened, though, is because Smart and Safe passed and, and the program was required to go into effect literally within, what less than 60 days. I mean, it went into effect by the second week of January. And so the rulemaking was absurd. We had a lot of counties and municipalities that just said, no, 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 no. We don't know what to do with this. So we're just banning adult use. So. It's been a struggle for those folks to even find locations. Dual license holders, again, we've got a lot of protections for our medical market. And so they're because they're dual, they're brought under that. But the the adult use standalone licenses have really struggled to find locations. And it's been a slow process to get cities and municipalities and counties to really look at their zoning and say, hey, we can't just ban adult use. We need to figure out what this looks like. And so I'd say that's been the biggest struggle. And it's certainly put those social equity and, and remote county license holders at a, at a big disadvantage. Once again, a state that has not figured out how to get social equity right. Um, so no, no and it's so sad, but no. Yeah, I mean, it's everywhere. It's, it's everywhere, yes. uh, unfortunately. Uh, well, speaking of everywhere, you uh, we, we've, we've spent this whole conversation so far pretty much talking about Arizona, but you're not an Arizona-only sure. firm. You, you, you all work- Correct. 
all over the country. So, I mean, where else, where else, yeah. Where, I mean, where else are you working and, and uh, you know, what, what states are you working in and what, what kind of stuff are you working on there? You know, I mean, we are definitely, so we're still, I feel like doing a lot of these, um, it, it's like the schoolyard fights that are still going on, right? So we have a lot of folks that are going into other states that are getting distressed assets or distressed partnerships, things like that, whether it's Missouri, you know, Illinois, Michigan, there's been a huge push for, of course, you know, New York and New Jersey, Florida. We have quite a few folks right now that we're working with in Florida to get, that's a very unique, uh, I'd say arduous program. Um, there's some interest, of course, in Texas, not because the current program is anything so spectacular, but because I, you know, there's a obviously a, a pretty good faith belief that it will continue to evolve. Yeah, it's, a big um, it's a huge state, right? It's, it's <laughs> massive. And I, you know, we'll see it happen, but I, you know, folks are really trying to figure out how to expand out of Arizona and and some of these states, too, because our valuations are so high. It's hard to go buy, you know, if you don't have 20 to 30 million sitting around. And again, access to capital is really challenging. More folks are looking at these new license states and saying, hey, can I apply whether we want to operate? Some people want to flip them. Some of them just want to, you know, do what they do again, whether that's cultivation, retail, things like that. And so, you know, a big part of what we do is helping clients with strategic expansion. And, and that's throughout the United States. And we've even got folks who are looking at Europe and looking at South America and, you know, other other countries to bring what they do to those locations. So we really probably 30 percent of our, our work right now is strategic expansion, licensing and helping clients figure out where are you going and how do we get you there? Um, and because of that, again, we're licensing quite a few states and we've done tons of applications and one licenses, but we also have great preferred partnerships, like I said, with different lawyers and folks throughout the U.S. that we've all worked together. And so it allows us you know, to work together with each other's clients for their benefits so that, again, we're a value add and folks aren't trying to go to a new state and find lawyers and find people that, you know, sometimes, especially in the new states, can be really challenging. Yeah, fair enough. So what so speaking of which, then, which. Like what states are you like excited about now? Where, you know, what are you, what are you call, following most closely? What, what, you know, what, what, yeah, what, what, what are you, what are you most interested in? What do you think are some of the most interesting markets, uh, you know, now and, and, then, you know, in the, in the near future here? I mean, Florida, I don't know if I'm excited. It's going to be interesting <laughs> to see where it goes. It's definitely a lot of ups and downs. It's a very emotional thing. We're going, we're coming, we're going, we're coming. Um, so Florida is certainly one we keep a, a very close eye on. You know, there's a lot of business to be done in Missouri. I mean, Missouri's got a really flourishing program. Um, I think they too are, are kind of at that place that Arizona was where there's a lot of opportunities to go in because of distressed assets or folks that, you know, took in 10 million bucks and they built out 5,000 square feet of canopy and where'd the rest of the money go? We don't know. <laughs> so there's a lot of opportunity to come in and, and we do that for a lot of our clients to go, Hey, we can help you or we can solve a problem. And that's really what we try to look at is the brand new states, what's coming online. You know, we watch obviously state, like I said, like Texas, like Oklahoma, you know, New Mexico, but we're still, I don't love states that are not limited license. It can be much more challenging to do business and until sort of the pricing and especially now with inflation and supply chain issues, but it can be, it's so expensive that a lot of those places just don't work. Even California can be a huge challenge. And so, you know, we look especially at, all right, where are the <laughs> mess and then it trickles over to us we'll leave that for another time sure. <laughs> yes i have one more person called me and ask if they could ship their product no you gotta get you get well that's it i mean that's actually an interesting follow so we, we've done a lot of coverage here on um the efforts or the efforts around interstate commerce um mm -hmm. and i know that you know gavin newsom has signed a bill in california that would allow them to 
export to states that allow it, uh, if there is some sort of not a law, not a change of federal law, but change of federal law or federal guidance. Um, mm -hmm. Oregon has signed a similar bill. I believe Washington has signed a similar bill. Is there any movement afoot in Arizona to join that effort? No, and I'm going to, this is, I'll take my lawyer hat off. This is probably my just business person opinion. I feel like it's the states that are just, they're absolutely saturated. They have programs that just have not, you know, they've allowed the, the legal market to flourish because the legal market is so expensive and arduous and ridiculous. And, and there's so many licenses. And so, you know, I understand what they're trying to do, but it's like, maybe you should just work on your own program instead of trying to ruin everybody <laughs> else's programs. Because we don't want to be those crazy unlimited states. It just, so many people have failed and it's so hard to make money. And so, you know, certainly there's always an interest. At, look, I tell clients, obviously we are all very comfortable. We're in an industry that remains federally illegal. So I, you know, I, I'm certainly not concerned about it, but, you know, there are different ways to do business that just, still allow us to limit liability to the extent that we can. And so it's just not something I, I always tell clients, like, you know, we had the coal memos. Remember all of those everybody was relying on until somebody came yeah. in and said, I don't agree. So your memos, I'm, I'm rescinding someone else's memo. They don't matter. They're not legal precedent. They don't, I can't use them as a defense. There's so many ways to go wrong. You know, these become very personal business decisions. But for me, there's, there's enough ways to do it in each state and to still expand and still have brands, you know, we, we continue to keep a close eye on it. But but to me, that's a risk that I I just don't think, especially for a lot of our bigger guys, is where you want to go. It's it's unnecessary attention. But that's completely fair. Um, right. That's, that's still business side, Laura. But just why take the risk? There's so many other things we could do. <laughs> sure, sure. No, totally understandable. Um, well, I mean, on that note, there are some real efforts at the federal level um, to, you know, deschedule, reschedule, right? Biden's got a sentencing commission or, or a commi not sentencing commission, but a, a, a scheduling commission, um, you know, currently looking at, uh, at, at kind of, you know, whether cannabis should be rescheduled or taken out of the Controlled Substances uh, Act entirely, um, which could have major, major impacts on the industry. Is that something you've been following? And if so, you know, what are, what are your thoughts? Is, is, there a, is there an outcome that you'd like to see? Is there an outcome that you think we're likely to see? I feel like those are two different things, but yes. Yeah, yeah no, they are totally, totally <laughs> two different things. Absolutely, yeah. No, and not look, I'm, I'm not being... Not being political in the least, but I feel like this was um, these were sort of bumper sticker like, yay, we're going to pardon people. OK, that affected like what, 6000 people. And it's great for those 6000 people. But most of your federal <laughs> indictments have nothing to do with, you know, this sort of low rate marijuana offenses. Um, yeah. And none so of those I people like have actually been released yet, from what I understand. No, no, nothing has really happened. It was it was just kind of a bumper sticker, rah, rah. And, you know, we looked at descheduling how many years ago and it took them i think they they reviewed it for six years and came back and were like no it's fine it's we're gonna leave it there Six, 16 <laughs> right? years yeah insane so uh, do i have a lot of faith no uh, you know we can't even get safe banking pass I, I feel like that's where we should really focus right now because i think there's just first of all you have so many state programs we've got so many things that we're still trying to work out i don't see change from a federal perspective coming anytime in the you know next year no matter what they say I, I feel like these are just attempts to and again thank you appreciate it i guess we love the idea and we want to keep it going forward but in reality <laughs> do they i don't think so no i'd love to be surprised but i don't think we will be you know what i'm gonna i'm gonna 
I'm going to take a little bit of a different stance there. I think you may be surprised. Um, and this is just my, this is just my opinion, uh, and, and what, you know, some stuff that I'm hearing out there, but, um, I, th you know, the, you're, you're absolutely right in the, in terms of the last, uh, attempts at rescheduling. Um, but those were, those were rescheduling reviews that were, prompted by lawsuits against the government from outside parties. Um, normal, uh, you know, normal in particular in the first one, Americans for Safe Access, I believe, in the second one. Um, this was prompted by the Biden administration themselves. Um, the thing that gives me the most hope that, there, that this could turn into something real is the fact that uh, that he called for this, the, both the pardons and this call this rescheduling just before the midterms. Like, I don't think that that was an accident. I think that that the political folks within the Biden administration recognize that being on the right side of cannabis reform is good is good electoral politics for the Democrats. Um, I actually think I would make the argument it would be good electoral politics for the Republicans as well, but they haven't they're not there yet. Um, and so I think you're going to see a resolution on this. I don't know what that's going to be, whether it's a recommendation of rescheduling or descheduling altogether sometime in the middle of 2024 because they want to use this as an issue for the president's reelection. Um, sure, sure. Listen, I hope you are right. <laughs> I absolutely <laughs> do. Maybe I'm just getting jaded in these old days. <laughs> What's happening? I certainly hope so. I mean, I, like I said, I think I agree 100% that it was a very, um, it was, it was a brilliant political move. And, you know, especially with everything else going on, I think that the public, right, is actually ready for something like this. I just I feel like our politicians right now can't get along in any realm. So I don't know how it's going to we'll see how it actually. Yes, that is, that, that is fair. Something? That is fair. And I'm, I'm, I'm definitely not a, you know, I'm definitely not a, an optimist when it comes to this stuff. I've been working on marijuana policy for 25 years. So I've been, you know, I've, I've been kicked in the teeth. Uh, you know, Many enough, times. Yeah, yeah. I mean, at, at this point, I'm, you know, I'm, I got to gum my food here. Um, so, <laughs> uh, I, I would not, nothing will surprise me, but I'm, I am, I am cautiously optimistic. Cautiously optimistic. I um, like it. I'll go yeah, there with I think, you. I, I think we've got some chances. Well, what about banking? I mean, it's another question we bring up. You, you think we should be focused on banking. Do you think that safe banking has a chance to pass in a divided Congress? Like, can we, like, I think we can get it through the Senate, but can we get it through this house? I don't know that we can. I mean, it keeps getting killed with just the different add-ons. And, and to me, it's so silly. And again, I'm you know speaking from a common sense perspective, but it's still one of the biggest challenges. And we have banks, don't get me wrong. Obviously, this is very different than even in 2012 or 14, where you you know everybody had 72 bank accounts, right? And they just went right. or tried to get money orders from the gas station. It was a nightmare. You know, we have armored car services, we have banks, but now they're just so expensive. I mean, what folks, you know, spend just on typical like business operating accounts is is outrageous and so it still is a big you know it can be a barrier to doing things correctly and especially as we have different relationships and things come in uh, you know i am hopeful how many times have we failed now i'm hopeful within the next year that we will get something passed but i do think that you know a, a lot of the banks i had seen more of a movement and them even coming to us and saying okay if we wanted now this is not bank of america wells fargo right the big ones but a lot of the smaller banks coming and saying how do we do our due diligence what you know what i mean how do we get so we can actually bank in this industry so we can offer this is the first couple of years they've been offering loans and things like that nothing significant and not anything you know like the sort of the typical market but Definitely seeing a trend that, that I think the banks are open to it, which I think helps from a political perspective as well. But again, it's just a slow, 
slow process. Yeah, yeah. I wish you were. I, I mean, I wish I shared your optimism on this one. I'm really less optimistic on this one than I am on the rescheduling, only because the, like the banks were in this last year when the Democrats controlled sure. both houses of Congress. The banks, I mean, the American Banking Association was one of the loudest voices on this issue, and we still couldn't get it done through a Democratic-controlled Congress. But, you know, maybe. Look, I think I think if we if, if we can get it done this year, it's almost certainly a, you know, it, it, it's almost certainly just safe banking, right? It's, you know, the old idea of, like, yeah. safe plus, totally. like social equity stuff. And, the, you know, oh, no, 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 Democrats, no. The Democrats screwed their chances of getting that done, right? When Because you're, totally, you're not, totally. you're not getting a social equity, a social equity focused banking bill through a, uh, you know, through a, through a, a McCarthy controlled House of Representatives. Um, no, no, right? but, not at all. But maybe they can get straight banking. Well, I also think right now, look, everybody's in a crunch. So from a tax perspective and just from a, a state money making perspective, as well as, you know, through the federal government, I think there is there is that gives sort of an extra incentive and push to. And, you know, I, for me, it's so silly because how better to track any sort of industry than to track the money? I mean, that that's just to me, it's number one common sense. I don't even understand the, the, the pushback. You have programs. Do you not want to see where the money is going or do you want to give people the opportunity, sometimes purposeful, sometimes not on purpose, but it's just so complicated to run cash businesses or businesses that you can't really bank and have access to the same financial services as everybody else. It's complicated and challenging. And so and dangerous. Yes. <laughs> and it's just silly. We don't need to, you know, in Arizona, there's really only one armored car service. So it, it you know, we have one that's great it's a step in the right direction, but it's still very challenging and, and, and definitely creates safety and security reasons concerns for no reason. So it's, it's right. frustrating. Yeah, that's exactly right. For no reason. It's a great, great yes. way to put it. All right, well, look, we're, we're well, coming. We have great policy advisors here that I let them do. I hate Excellent. Excellent. Smart. <laughs> I try Smart. to be the like, let me know how I can fix it in the meantime so we can all make money. <laughs> and then you guys keep part. Yes, you could be the sound voice of reason from the business perspective. I'm trying. Great. Um, look, we're, we're coming close to uh, uh, up on our time here. And um, so I just want to like, want to get to some some bigger picture stuff to, to close us out. What trends are you seeing in the industry these days that you find particularly interesting um, and that you're, you know, what, like what, 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 what kind of industry trends? It could be anything, right? Products, it could yeah. be, you know, products could be market forces, whatever. Like what, what are you sure. seeing out there that is particularly interesting that you think that folks should be keeping an eye on in the coming you know year or two? So, I, you know, I certainly, M&A has changed. And I think for the better, I think there's some really great smaller investment opportunities. I like seeing some of these, you know, smaller guys that have grown organically and done a good job. They didn't take down the, you know, 20, 30, 50 million dollar, you know, debt raises. They actually did it organically and you're seeing them start to come together. And so I think there's a lot of opportunity for, you know, positive organic expansion. I also think there's a, you know, there's a lot of distressed license holders and distressed assets. And while I, you know, hate to say that's a good thing, it's it's great for folks that again want to expand, want to really take whatever they have perfected, whether that's a brand, whether that's just their ability to do retail. I think it it opens doors in other states because again, for a while, if you didn't have 10, 20, 30 million dollars or access to that, good luck getting into this industry. And not that it's any less expensive, but I think there's more opportunities, you know, if you're paying attention, if you've got the right team. Um, and again, a lot of this is, you know, knowing folks like you and we all talk to each other and work together and just, you know, it, it allows us to put deals together with really good people and 
frankly, if we can, you know, not do deals with assholes, that makes us all happier. Sorry. <laughs> so we try to put good, good deals together, get rid of some of the ones that you're like, no, no, there's enough we can't control in life. Let's at least, you know, do business with good people. Um, I love that, you know, I think it's obviously I've seen a lot of this this year, but there's, you know, another push and, and sort of recognition that we also need more women executives in this industry. You know, we kind of set off like gangbusters in the beginning and then as traditional capital and VCs and things come in and sort of shifted again. And a couple of years ago, I went to MJ Viscon and I was like, oh, look, I'm the only one in all the old white men. So it just, I was like, what happened? What happened? We were doing so well. And so, you know, I think it's, it, it's also been a lot of fun to see a sort of rejuvenation and shift. And there's a lot of us that, you know, have, have been successful. And so we love looking at female owned companies and brands and, you know, and really seeing if we can invest and bring money into these different areas from a diversity perspective. So I, I there, I, again, I've, for these things, I'm I'm optimistic. I know there's a lot of, it's still kind of sharky water, but I I think that there's there's a lot of opportunities that we didn't have, you know, the past couple of years. Absolutely, yeah. There's still a lot of still a lot of room to grow, and and there's, uh, I mean, I I say it's a it's a I think this is a great time for folks to invest in cannabis, right? I mean, the capital when the capital markets suck like this, you're never going to get you're, you're probably never going to see valuations like the totally. like, like you see today. Um, yeah. So great time for folks to get in. Um, yeah. Well, Laura, we're coming up to the end of our time here. Is there anything that I did not ask you that you want to say, plug, let our listeners know, you know shameless self-promotion, uh, it falls in your court here. No, I mean, again, you always do a great job and I appreciate it. You know, like I said, we, we have tried and continue to try to be not only a law firm, but really a, a company that has strategic advisors that, you know, adds value to this industry. That's the fun part, right? We've drafted contracts for, you know, for years. We've got great lawyers that do that. But, you know, I, I think looking forward, it's, it's, it, this is sort of the fun part, again, where we get to look and see what's in front of us and who we can bring together and what kind of deals we can put together. And that's the part that excites me. You know, that's sort of this next phase um, is how we see the industry grow and evolve. And it's exciting. It's, it's always crazy. Never boring. <laughs> great. Well, where can folks find you? You have a website uh, somewhere anyone's, anyone needs a good... We uh, do. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. www.bianchibrandt.com. You just put in Bianchi Brandt, all of our things will come up. You can follow us on social media, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn. Everything is at Bianchi Brandt. Fantastic. Well, Laura Bianchi, Bianchi Brandt, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been a lot of fun, particularly taking this trip down memory lane. Uh, totally. It's great time. to catch up. Uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> no, I appreciate you being here. I appreciate everything you do in the industry. Thanks so much. You too. Thank you very much for having me. Awesome. Once again, huge thanks to Laura Bianchi, founding partner of Bianchi and Brandt. You can follow their firm by visiting their website, BianchiBrandt.com. That's spelled B-I-A-N-C-H-I-B-R-A-N-D-T.com. As always, thanks for listening to The Green Rush. If you want to chat with Chris, Ann, Lewis, Phil, or myself, you can find us on Twitter with the handle at the underscore Green Rush or on Instagram at the Green Rush underscore podcast. You can shoot us an email at greenrush at kcsa.com. We love your feedback, guest ideas, and everything in between. And don't forget to subscribe to The Green Rush in your favorite podcatcher. That's one take, Shay. One take.